Good morning. Hopefully all of you have thawed out, literally. <laughs> um, and I want to apologize because I'm somewhat at fault for that. Um, because for three and a half years, I have prayed earnestly for snow here in the low country. And so God answered my prayers, and I just want to say, you're welcome. <laughs> but I do feel guilty about that because about four days after the snow, um, me and Jamie went and laid on a beach in the Caribbean. So, you're like, <laughs> so you can stone me afterwards if you want to. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts this morning. We're going to be looking at Acts 2. Read for us this morning, I believe, was verses 37 through 47, and I really want to land in verse 42 and following. We're going to kind of launch into that, but by way of context, just to kind of bring you in to what we've been talking about um, over the last few weeks, welcome to part two of this series in the book of Acts. Last week, Tyler unfolded chapter one for us, showing that the early church is really framed by three things. I don't know if you remember what they are. Tyler would be thrilled if you do. A divine purpose, a clear mission, and an unshakable assurance were those three framings. And what we begin to see is those things playing out in Acts chapter 2. So what Luke is about to do is kind of just start to unfold those items, those things. And it begins in verses 1 through 4, this huge theological event that happened in verses 1 through 4 is called the day of Pentecost, right? God pours out the third person of the Trinity onto the apostles. And that's what you see in verses 1 through 4. And then verses 14 through 36, namely with Peter, namely he begins to what? He begins to preach and address the people of Judea and all of the people who dwell in Jerusalem. And he comes to the end of his sermon at Pentecost, right, 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension of Christ into heaven. And he ends on this Christ-exalting note made in verse 36. Look at it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. So he's basically saying, in other words, know this. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you, what? You killed. You killed him. In other words, God has raised Jesus from the dead He's installed him into his exalted offices of Lord of the church that he bought with his blood. And he's king now over his covenant people. This one, Peter says, you crucified. And then we can just kind of pause there because you could really be amazed as this kind of continues, to, if you continue to read, we could be amazed by God's amazing grace because instead of grinding their teeth and dragging him out to be beheaded or stoned, which, by the way, is what will happen to James and Stephen, right? So what begins to happen is they are what? 
They're convicted of their sin. Notice verse 37. I love this. Now, when they heard this, they were what? They were cut to the heart. Right? They were convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you're, when you're in the pews and you are cut to the heart, don't blame the preacher. <laughs> this is the Holy Spirit working in your life, convicting you of something. And it's a good thing. And they're convicted. And their question to the apostles is, brothers, what shall we do? I love it. So what do we do now? We killed him. We understand that. And Peter's response, right, verses 38 and 39, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is, notice this, this don't skip this. We can read very just kind of nonchalantly over these next words because Peter is about to speak into your life. Because he says, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are what? Far off in South Carolina in generations to come. Or Illinois or Kansas or Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself, this promise is for you. The Holy Spirit is for you. And the result of Peter's sermon and God's gift of repentance is that what? 3,000 souls come to Christ, just like that. And what you begin to see is like this small little snowball on the top of a mountain begin to just kind of start rolling down. I'm telling you, this spiritual force that begins in Acts 2 is unstoppable. The gates of hell is not going to prevail against this force. And so here we are. <laughs> it was like, thank you, Lord, you're still faithful. And we see the Holy Spirit being poured out. Starting in verse 42, Luke takes us up. He kind of gives us this overview now. He's going to give you kind of just the day-by-day -day essentials of what's going on in the early church. Just kind of a summary of what this work, this unstoppable work looks like. And I see two beautiful things that are happening. Two beautiful things that are marking the early church. And here they are. Number one, God-given spiritual growth. God-given growth. And the second mark is spirit-filled fellowship. So let's just take those two marks very quickly and let's just talk about them. Let's just look at them and see them in Scripture. So first mark, God-given growth. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done, what? Through the apostles. Notice it doesn't say by the apostles. That's important. Because the men that are your clergy and the individuals that fill churches are what? They are very flawed human beings. I would love for you just to say, your person sitting next to you, you're very flawed human being. <laughs> right? And we're like, amen. Right? And some of you are like nudging your spouses and like, totally, you're a loser. Right? So we are flawed. 
It's not by, it's through. Thank God that God works through us and not by us. You see this more clearly in chapter 3. We're not going to go there, but you, you probably know the story very well. Peter and John heading to the temple to pray. And they encounter a lame man. And he is asking for alms, which is a fancy word for money. And you remember Peter's response is priceless. He's like, look at us. Does it look like we have money? Right? I don't have money. And he doesn't either. But one thing we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, in the power of Christ, get up and walk. Right? I mean, that's a message in and of itself. Money doesn't build the kingdom of God. God does. <laughs> the Spirit of God does. And then what begins to happen as the story plays out, right? It's, it's not like all the people are like, look what God has done. Peter is now becoming a rock star. And they're approaching Peter. And Peter's response is priceless. Why do you wonder? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or our piety... We've done this. In other words, Peter is saying, this is God's doing. This is all God. This has nothing to do with us. It's God's work. God making himself known and exercising power to save. That's how God builds churches. That's how he does it. And you see this more clearly in verse 47, just in case you didn't get the point. He says in verse 40, and the, what? Lord added to their number. Who's doing the adding? The Lord's doing it. The Lord is doing this. You see the same thing in chapter 4 and verse 4. God, so listen to these words very clearly because I don't want you to misunderstand me. God uses means, but it is the Lord who adds. Or in other words, duties are ours, right? There are things that we do. We don't just sit in the pews and just kind of passively say, okay, God, just bring them on in. We're ready, right? Duties are ours. The results are the Lord's. Amen? First mark, God-given growth. Second mark, spirit-filled fellowship. You see this in verse 42. I love this. This is where it just gets fun. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, breaking of bread, to the prayers. Verse 44, and all who believed were what? They were together. There's togetherness. And had all things in common. Verse 45, there is distribution as any had need. Verse 46, day by day, they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. I love that. You want to know why? Because I love food. <laughs> and what Luke is saying is, listen, one of the ingredients of fellowship is food. You can put it this way. They are meeting in their homes and they are shucking oysters together around a table. They're gathered around the fried chicken. 
collard greens, buttered biscuits. Getting hungry? Or something I completely don't understand about the South, tomato pies, right? Food is one of their essential ingredients. They receive their food with gladness and generous hearts. They're praising God and having favor with all the people. They are marked by togetherness, a real, genuine heart to live life together. Now, we we could just stop there, and I would do this a major injustice because it's not just togetherness, right? They have what? So togetherness, but they also have commonalities. They have things in common. What are those things that they have? They love Christ. Theologically, they are together, and nothing is going to shake them. But not only that. You see something also very beautiful. They are sharing. <laughs> right? I got four kids. The brothers and sisters share. Not so much. They don't do well at that, right? But not these brothers and sisters. They are sharing. They are marked by a bond that if, if one was in need, the others did not feel that they had the right to live on in prosperity without giving up something to meet that need. And one thing that Luke makes crystal clear in his gospel, and that he's beginning to make crystal clear here, is that Christians are to use their possessions for the needs of others and not just for their own comforts. Can I hear an amen to that? (laughs) Now we're like squirming in our chairs, right? So God-given growth, spirit-filled fellowship. Now as a church, we can see these two marks and we can really make a blunder out of both. Max Lucado tells a great story just by way of illustration. He tells a story about a lady who is convinced by her husband to go skiing. (laughs) Right, we could just laugh about that. While waiting in the lift she realized she was in need of a restroom, a dire need of a restroom. Assured there would be one at the top of the lift by her husband, her bladder endured the bouncy ride, only to find that there was no facility at the top. She began to panic. Her husband had an idea. Why not just go into the woods? Since she was wearing an all-white outfit, she'd be blinded in the snow. And what better powder room than a piney grove, right? So what choice did she have? She skied past the tree line, arranged her ski suit at half-mast. Fortunately, no one could see her. And unfortunately, her husband hadn't told her to remove the skis. Before she knew it, she was streaking backwards across the slope, revealing more about herself than she ever intended. And with her arms flailing and skis sailing, she sped under the very lift that she had ridden and collided with a pylon. And as she scrambled to cover the essentials, she discovered her arm was broken. Fortunately, her husband rescued, came to the rescue and summoned the ski patrol who transferred, transported her to the hospital. And so while being 
While being treated in the emergency, a man with a broken leg was carried in and placed next to her. By now, she's regained her composure enough to make small talk. And so she asked this man, how'd you break your leg? It was the darndest thing you'd ever saw, he explained. I, I was riding up a ski lift. And suddenly I couldn't believe my eyes. There was this crazy woman skiing backwards at top speed. I leaned over to get a better look, and I guess I didn't realize how far I'd moved. I fell right out of the lift. <laughs> and then he turned to her and asked, so how did you break your arm? <laughs> you know, in, in life, we can make some pretty big mistakes. And the point of the illustration is we can climb some mountains that we were just never intended to climb. The church is not immune to these same mistakes of life, right? The tale of the lady can echo the same blunders of Christ's bride. Because you can take the mark of God-given growth, and instead you can, instead of it being God-given, we can just try to manufacture growth. We can kind of like try to orchestrate growth. The clergy can meet in a room and they, we, we can like put our minds together, me and Tyler, and we can be like, okay, how do we do this? How do, how do we do something so big that this is going to bring all kinds of people in here? And we can get clever and we can just kind of put God on the shelf and say to God, well, you know, we can do this. And instead of being spirit-filled fellowship and God-given growth, we can begin to make this blunder that they are mutually exclusive. That we can just grow the church while all of us in here just kind of like, um, so is there any discipleship? Am I going to grow any, anywhere past this? And we can become so spirit-filled in our fellowship, right? That we can become self-absorbed. That it's all about us. And we can just act like we just we don't care about the lost. But the, the message of Acts 2, verses 37 through 47, is it's both, brothers and sisters. It's both. It is God-given growth. Right? It is, it is a posture of a people who are on their knees asking God to grow us. That's the idea. It is humble humility by the means and the strength by which he gives us and the financial means that he gives us. That we get on our knees before the altar of St. Paul's and we say, God, help us to grow. We don't want to be passive. We need your help. It's not all about us. And as God brings people into these doors... What then begins to happen? We enfold them in. We say, welcome. Here's a small group to connect to. Because we live life together here. And not just life together, we live spirit-filled lives together. Because we love Jesus. And we want you to love Jesus. 
And the way that we do that is being together. It is a people investing, it's a people inviting, putting yourself out there to people that you don't know. And as God brings them here, we grow, but then we become also a people cultivating, people pursuing each other, and life lived together. May St. Paul's be that church. May it continue to be that church, and may God bless this message, and may God bless you. Amen. Amen.